One of the most amazing things to me, and I'm sure to you, in life is the fact that God, time after time after time, proves himself to be true. Proves his power, proves his ability to accomplish things in a divine way, and yet, when we come face to face with a crisis in our own life, our first inclination is to trust ourselves. Instead of following God's word and simply obeying it, instead of doing what God has told us we must do, instead of putting our confidence in him and say, Lord, you are God, you are sovereign, you are powerful, you are good, and God, I know that this circumstance to me looks as though it's dire, yet I know that you are the master controller of all things. And therefore, I say thank you, Lord, I rest in your faithfulness. Instead of doing that, we get frustrated, and we look around for ways that we can finagle it ourselves. Saw a book on the secular bookstore shelf the other day, The Art of Manipulation. <laughs> the Art of Manipulation. Well, I don't think we need a book on that. I think we're all really good at it. We manipulate. Think of Abraham. God said, I'm going to give you a son. And from that son, I'm going to raise a great nation. Abraham said, great. But then God was too slow for Abraham. And he began to think, you know, maybe God needs my help. It didn't help any that his wife had already concluded that. She was barren. How is God going to raise up a child from an aging, barren woman. Can't do it. So take Hagar, your handmaiden. Take her. And uh, what did it produce? Ishmael. God came to Abraham and said, Abraham, I'm not done yet. I'm going to give you a son. You remember what he said? Let Ishmael live before you. I already got a son. We've got it wired. God, you and I, we have, we have manipulated this thing into success. I've always been impressed with the fact that when God told, after the birth of Isaac and the miracle that that was, God told Abraham to take your son, your only son, Isaac, and offer him as a burnt offering. God never recognized Ishmael as a legitimate son. Now, we know from the text of Scripture when Hagar ran away and was just ready to just sit down and die, that God cared for Ishmael. And that God cared for Hagar. But God rose up a great nation from Ishmael that would become the thorn in the side of Israel the rest of their history. For from Ishmael's loins came the Arab nation. Ishmael was the best man could do. Isaac was what God could do. And I'll tell you something. Abraham is still suffering. 
from that sin. Now, we have another story like that that I want to share with you this morning that is perhaps less familiar than the story of Abraham. And I hope will be an encouragement to you this morning that God is still able and that God can go beyond even our mistakes and salvage us, but we must learn from those things that God wants to teach us. The name of the king is Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah. And the text in verse 2 makes it very, very clear, and this is Second Chronicles 25, the text in verse 2 makes it clear that he was, he was one of these better kings of Israel, but certainly not one of the best of the kings. The text says he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, but not with his whole heart. Remember, wholeheartedness is always the cry of Scripture. The word that is used for wholeheartedness or for whole is from a word group from which we get the word shalom or peace. Peace is factions coming together in accord. Peace is that which is broken, being brought together. Peace is that which is whole, that which is complete. And so when you find that idea of wholeness in the Old Testament, it is that principle and idea of, of, of peace the peace of God that passes all understanding in the Old Testament sense. So we're talking here about a person who, who has a heart that is not broken in two, divided. He's not a double-minded man, because a double-minded man is unstable in how many of his ways? All of his ways. A fellow thinks that he can be divided, that he can have half a heart for God and half a heart for the world, and they still can kind of make it and sort of balance the two, balance my religious life and my secular life and make some kind of a dichotomy there. I can live for God on Sunday and live, live for uh, the world on, on uh, a Tuesday or Wednesday. And yet it's not possible because a double-minded man, a man that's torn that way, will be unstable in all of his ways. He'll have no stability in his home. He'll have no stability in his family. He'll have no stability as far as his personal life is concerned or his, his business life is concerned. He's going to be a mess. And here's a man who, as far as the practice publicly was concerned, by and large, he could be said that he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. You could say his heart was in the right place, but the problem was the whole heart wasn't there. He did what he should do as a righteous king of Israel, but his heart was not right. There's so many people, even this day, that have that same kind of a thing. They compromise. A little compromise here, a little compromise there. And the result is that he is, as Pilgrim in Pilgrim's Progress, Bunyan put it, Mr. Facing Both Ways. Mr. Facing Both Ways. And so here he was with this sort of a dichotomy in his life. He's what we would call today in the New Testament economy a carnal believer. A person who, who goes to church and, 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 and does the things that you're supposed to do at church and people look at him and say, my, what a spiritual person. And yet, 
There's another side to him that many of the church people do not know. Part of his life that is not being lived for God, that kind of compromise is called carnality. His first official act as king was to execute those that had assassinated his father. And this was common practice in that day and allowable under the law. Verse 4, you see that when he did that, however, he limited himself by the law of God. He, he followed the principle that is found in Deuteronomy 24.16 in reference to the idea that, that just because the father is involved in assassination, you don't wipe out the whole family. That was done commonly in that day, and that's a regulation in regard to vengeance in this age of judgment in which they lived under law. It was something that, that where God put in a safeguard. He didn't want a vendetta going on. It was allowable because of the law. There was the, the allowance of those that had assassinated the king for the ones who had assassinated him to be put to death under capital punishment. But the sons were not put to death, even though Oriental kings commonly did that in that day. And so the Holy Spirit marks this as an incident to give us an example of how his heart was right with God. He limited his vendetta to merely those that were involved in the assassination and not to their families. In other words, he obeyed Scripture. The problem with a half-hearted man is that he will obey Scripture enough so people think that he's an obedient Christian. And yet, that same person will compromise Scripture at another point, as we'll see in a moment. So that, the Holy Spirit gives us that illustration to show here is a man who did, at least in this case, that which was right in the sight of the Lord. But not with his whole heart. Not with his whole heart. Someone said Christians are like tea bags. You don't really know what their flavor is until they're in hot water. You get a person in the right circumstances and watch. Will he obey Scripture... Or will he disobey? It's in the time of hot water that your true flavor is seen. Christ had many people, you know, in the New Testament who said, Lord, I'll follow you. Lord, I'll go where you want me to go. You name it, I'll go. I'll follow you. And yet, where were they? They soon became dropouts because they followed the Lord, but not with their whole heart. Amaziah began to show signs of compromise when he named the, or excuse me, when he numbered the people. There was only one reason why ancient kings took a census, and that was to know the strength of their armies. And that's why God said, don't do it. Remember back in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, it says Satan moved David's heart to number Israel. Satan did it. Satan wanted David to begin to look at the numbers of troops he had so that he could trust those troops. The fascinating thing about it is that in the scriptural account in 1 Chronicles 21, it tells us that this was David's great sin. The sin with Bathsheba the sin of murdering Uriah the Hittite 
were called sin. No question about it. But David's great sin was the sin of pride, the sin of self-confidence, the sin of confidence in the arm of the flesh. Because he counted the people, he numbered the people, and a great plague came on the people because of David's great sin. David and his family suffered because of his sin with Bathsheba. But when David, as king, did not trust God and took upon him the fleshly business of counting his troops, the plague came on all the people. And the people were judged because of their leadership. Now, earlier in the service, we read from Psalm 44 and from Psalm 20. Let me just review this with you. The psalmist is reviewing history. Here's what it says. Thou with thine own hand didst drive out the nations. Then thou didst plant them. Thou didst afflict the people. Then thou didst spread them abroad. For by their own sword they did not possess the land. And their own arm did not save them. But thy right hand and thine arm and the light of thy presence. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some boast in chariots and some in horses. But we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. The problem is that when you do something with the arm of the flesh, with your own strength, with your own might, with your own power, you boast in what you have done. But when it's God and only God that does it, when we have rested in Him, when we have trusted in Him, and He has accomplished His work, we have no boast but in the Lord. And all of the boasting, all of the glory belongs to Almighty God. And therefore, God does not want us to trust our own devices. He wants us to trust Him. That's not that He doesn't use us in the process. It's not as though He doesn't command us to be involved and to be diligent and all of the rest. We're not talking about sitting back on flowery beds of ease and just saying, well, I'm just trusting God. Trusting God is a matter of obedience. When the Lord says, stand still, you stop. When the Lord says, move forward, you move forward. When He says, praise Him, you praise Him. When He says, pray, you pray. When He says, serve, you serve. When He says, as you're going, make disciples, you make disciples. You get involved in what God wants to accomplish through His people because God wants to work through you. But in the process, you do it in accordance with God's plan, without manipulation, without all kinds of uh, innovation, all kinds of creative ideas as to how we can make God's will come to pass. Don't do it. So here is a man who goes out and counts his troops. There's a verse in Psalm 33 that says, The king is not saved by his mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. A horse, and I should explain this, the armed horse in the time of the kings was considered the atomic bomb or the hydrogen bomb of that time. It was the most awesome weapon. When they put the coat 
of mail on the, on the rider and put the armor over the horse and gave him a lance with a sword by his side. It was, it was the equivalent of nuclear tanks today as far as they were concerned. There was no weapon known to man at that time that was greater than the armed horse. And so a horse, it says, is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. You understand that? Who can deliver? The Lord can deliver. So Amaziah counted noses. And he found that he had a potential army of 300,000 men. Not only just a potential army, they looked like crack troops. They were good troops. But because he was a practical man, by the way, being practical sometimes is the equivalent of not being spiritual. Not that it's wrong to be practical. But what some people call practicality is often the arm of the flesh rather than trusting God being a practical man. He reckoned on the fact that knowing the troop strength of the other nations round about him, he could not get by on less than 400,000 men. He had to beef up those troops because he needed to be able to face whatever foe came against him. And his calculation was 100,000. The nation of Israel, the ten northern tribes, at this period of history, was an apostate nation that had forsaken the Lord their God. God referred to them as Ephraim. Ephraim was only one of the small tribes. But when God referred to Israel as Ephraim, using that as a synonym for, for the nation, it was because of a particular act of Ephraim that was so despicable to God, and that was idolatry. Ephraim hath joined itself to its idols. Let them alone. And so when God when God said called Israel Ephraim or said Israel even Ephraim God was mad. God was wrathful against the people. God was looking them, uh, on them as an idolatrous people. And that's what he does in this text. And so the people of Israel were apostate. They were far from God. And Amaziah says, all right, I need 100,000 more troops. How am I going to get them? Well, my neighbor up here, these 10 northern tribes, they've got a lot of people in their army. And so therefore, I am going to buy some troops. Notice what the text says. He hired also... 100,000 valiant warriors out of Israel for 100 talents of silver. He went into the king's treasury, dug deep. He came up with 10,000 talents, or 100, I can't even remember the number, 100,000 100, men and, and, and 100, 100 talents of silver. If you took, you understand that in Bible times, at least in the New Testament times, a day's wage was one denarii. Using that as a calculation point, one day's wage, a denarii, the numbers of denarii in a talent, 
and then a hundred talents. My friends, that amounts to more than several billion dollars in silver. Actually, the new uh, international version has in the margin three and a half tons. That's a hundred talents. Three and a half tons of silver. So figure it the other way. Take how much is silver worth an ounce, eight dollars, nine dollars, something like that, and figure out how many ounces to a pound and how many pounds to a ton, and, and, and multiply it by three and a half tons, and you have a general idea of approximately what this was. This was a small fortune. Gave that three and a half tons of silver to Israel for a hundred thousand troops. You getting the picture? Now he's got his army. But you see, whereas God has, in a very real sense, put his Ichabod over the ten northern tribes. God still has a purpose for the people of Judah, and that would be the tribes of Judah and with Benjamin. Judah and Benjamin, the two southern tribes, God still had a plan for them. The God wanted to keep them, uh, keep them pure. He still wanted to accomplish some things through them. He had not written them off. They had had some good kings and some bad kings. They, from time to time, destroyed the idols. And, uh, and so God is still working with these people. He hasn't written them off yet. And God's not going to let them get away with it. Israel could have done this. In fact, they did. And God didn't say anything because... You see, the, the people that are that far from God, God many times just quits talking to them. But there's a prophet in Judah. We're not given his name. But he comes before these people, or before the king, and he says to them, look, don't go through with this plan. Don't take those mercenaries with you when you go to battle. Leave them home. Fire them. Get rid of them. Here's what it says exactly. The man of God came to him, this is in verse 7, saying, O king, do not let the army of Israel go with you. Why? Why shouldn't he let the people of Israel go with him? Why not these mercenaries? Well, here's why. Because the Lord is not with Israel. Get it? The Lord can be with you. But the Lord is not with Israel. And if you go into battle, I love this part. It's, it's really it's part of the humor of Scripture. You go into battle, that's fine. Go ahead. But you better be prepared to fight like you've never fought before because the Lord is going to fight on the other side. No matter who you go against, no matter who they are, the Lord is going to go against you, and you are going to get beat. You've had it. Because the Lord's against you. Not because the armies are against you. So figure it out. You go into battle with 400,000 troops, you're going to get beaten. You go in with 300,000 troops, and you've got to fight in chance. What are you going to do? Well, the object, of course, is to win. And here is a man who has manipulated and thought he had a solution, a fleshly solution to a divine problem. And, and, and now he's finding out that he's, he's turned the odds. Now, you remember, he, he, he believes in God of Israel. 
It's not as though this man is an atheist and says, I don't care what God wants. Here is a man who, is, who, who believes that God is real and that God has power and that God, that God means what he says. He's had enough experience to know that you, you, you don't want to cross God. And so he's suddenly placed in a great dilemma. Do I want the Lord against me? Turn with me back to James 4 for a moment, will you? James chapter 4. The book of James always has some excellent wisdom. And there are just a number of things that come up there that reinforce so much of what the New Testament teaches. But this is one of the best. Look, if you will, at verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know, and the word oida is the word for know there. It's not a matter of understanding, it's a matter of intuitive knowledge. Do you not know intuitively that friendship with the world is hostility toward God. There's no middle ground here. Whoever wishes to be the friend of the world makes himself the enemy of God. You make a choice. Every moment of your life, every day of your life, you can go one of two ways. You can go God's way, you can go the world's way. You go the world's way, God's your enemy. I don't care who you are. There are a lot of people think they can play fast and loose with God and, and that God just oh, God's just my, my wonderful friend no matter what I'm doing. I can sin and he's my friend. And you hear people saying that kind of stuff. That's not what the Word of God teaches. The Word of God teaches that when, when you are for God, God is for you. But when you decide to... Go for those that are God's enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's not as though God loves you any less. But from the practical standpoint, God becomes the enemy. The scripture uses a word called tasso, the Greek word tasso, which meant a battle array. It meant troops lined up, and they would go in 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 uh, lines against the enemy. And the first ones would fall and the others would step over them and keep going. They went in rank and file. That's what, where the term comes from. And they would go in waves over the enemy. And this is where they fought war in that day. The idea is that, that, that here is battle array set up. God stands in front of the enemy and stands against you in battle array when you trust your own devices and go your own way. You've heard me sometimes talk about pride and humility. Very basically, going through the whole of Scripture and taking the whole thing into consideration, pride boils down to the person who trusts himself, who says, I can do it. That's why God hates pride, because God doesn't want you to trust in yourself. He wants you to trust in Him. And so pride is when you say, God, I can do it. I don't need your help. I can make it on my own. Or God, I'll let you come along, but I am... I'm going to make it. I'm going to do this. I don't care what your Bible says. I don't care what anything else. That's the epitome of pride. Humility, on the other hand, is simply trust. Humility is saying, I can't. 
I can't do it. I, I, I don't have enough strength. I don't have enough power. I need your power, Lord. I'm trusting you. That's what humility is all about. Christ, when he was being crucified, according to Second, uh, First Peter chapter 2, when he was being crucified, committed himself into the hands of the Father who could take care of all the details. He didn't fight it. He just simply let himself be crucified knowing that God had the power to raise him from the dead. And so Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is a perfect example of true humility. He was meek and lowly in heart. And that word lowly is the word that we're talking about there. And so Jesus Christ is the example of one who really trusted God. Go through the Gospels and see his humility. His humility was not that he didn't do anything or didn't think he could do anything. The thing was he didn't do anything apart from the power and the wisdom of God. That's what made him truly humble. When you trust your own devices, God's against you. That's what the text says. It says, or do you, uh, in verse 6, but he gives a greater grace, therefore it says... God is opposed, anti-tossal, to set up his battle array against you. God is opposed to the proud, the one that's trusting his own device, but gives grace to the humble, the one that really trusts him. And so this is what we're faced with in this particular text of Scripture. Don't let the mercenaries go into battle. Why not? Because God isn't with them. And if you do go in the battle, just remember that the Lord is going to be against you. But there's something more. Look at what it says. For God has power to help, and God has power to bring down. You and the Lord make a majority. It doesn't matter if everyone else is against you. The Lord, all by himself, is able to bring down and defeat the armies, and look at the Old Testament illustrations we have of that. What happened in the siege of Samaria when God had promised through the prophet that they were going to be able to be released from that siege? That night, the Syrian army, hundreds of thousands of the Syrian army, heard a noise! And they all ran away. Another time, 185,000 of Sennacherib's troops it says they woke up the next morning and they were all dead. <laughs> How'd you like to wake up dead tomorrow morning? That's the... You see, God is able. God drove the Canaanites out by using hornets. God brought a David to slay a Goliath with a slingshot, no less. Here, Goliath had all the armor. He had the sword. He had the armor bearers. He had everything that was needed. And everybody said to him, David, David, you can't go down there. He's too big to hit. And David said, too big to hit? He's too big to miss. And he says, you come against me with sword and spear. But I come how? in the name of the Lord of hosts of Israel. People say, well, but David, David didn't show much faith because remember, he, he, he had his pouch full of stones. And he took one stone and all, that's all it took. He should have trusted God and not had any more. But did you know, Goliath had brothers. He was ready for the whole family, if need be. David was a man who trusted 
God and went against the greatest odds that you could imagine. But he did it in the name of the Lord. On the other hand, here's Amaziah. And he's in a dilemma. Because after all, I don't want the Lord against me. But on the other hand, I need those troops. And the answer is, God has the power to help and bring down. Do you, do you think it's a coincidence that Christ said, all power, all exousia, all authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore. Go ye therefore. And lo, I am with you always. The one with the power is able to stand. We've lost confidence today in the omnipotent power of God. Rationalists have said reason is enough. Uh, the naturalists have said there's a natural explanation for, for anything. The secularists have said you can make it on your own without God. None of us believe any of those things. Not really. We, we do believe that God is an all-powerful God, theologically at least. The problem is that from the practical standpoint, the rationalists and the naturalists and the, and the, the secularists have made their impact upon the Christian church. We no longer seem to have that kind of confidence in Almighty God that is an essential part of the whole picture of faith. God is omnipotent. And Amaziah's problem was not that he didn't know what God had done in the past. The problem that Amaziah had is the problem that most people have today, and that is they do not believe that the God of, past, of the past can do it in the present or do it in the future. They believe, sure, God did it. History has recorded it. Miracles have happened at the hand of God. Great and mighty things have taken place. And, and people trusted God, and God came through. But, but you don't understand. My situation is different. Now, we're living in a more modern age, and, and, and God just doesn't work that way today like he did in one time. But God is the same. We have such a, such a lot of of things to trust today other than God. If you don't believe that this is an important thing, I want you to go with me just for a few minutes over to the New Testament. I want you to start in Hebrews chapter 7. And I want you to understand that if you have a King James Bible, especially and often in the modern translations as well, when you see the word able... It is the word dunamis, which means inherent power. And uh, so when you see able, you could insert the word power, and it would be legitimate. Dunamis is the word that is translated in uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 16, the power of God unto salvation. The power, the dunamis. We get our word dynamite from that. It means that within, within the person himself, there is the inherent power to do this, all right? That it is a part of his being, a part of his character. It's not just that he gives power, but he, he is all-powerful. It, it is speaking of his omnipotence. And the word able, somehow in English, doesn't really convey that thought. But that's the thought and the idea behind it. So what does it say in verse 25? Hence also, speaking of Jesus Christ in his high priestly ministry, hence also he is able, he has the power, 
to save forever those who draw near unto God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He has the power to save. 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. And verse 12. For this reason I also suffer these things, but I'm not ashamed. For I know, I know whom, not what, but I know whom I have believed and am convinced. Here's Paul's conviction. I am convinced that he is what? Able. That he has the what? The power, that he has the power to guard that which I've entrusted to him until that day. God can take care of you. He has the power to save. He has the power to safeguard. Let's look at another one. Philippians chapter 3, verse 21. Philippians 3, verse 21. It's telling us that our citizenship is from heaven from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's in verse 20. Now notice this description of Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. This is the matter that Jesus Christ is going to take this body and He is going to, by a miracle in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, change this body so that it be made like unto his glorified body. Notice what it says. He will take this vile body, transform it, and it is by the exertion of the power that he has even to subdue all things to himself. The power of God to subdue not only means that he can take this body and transform it for space travel and, and transform it so that we can live through all of eternity and never die and wipe away all tears from our eyes and all of the things that we think of when we think of heaven. He is able to do that, but he is able to do it with the same power whereby he is going to bring into subjection everything on earth. He is going to win, folks. You somehow the battle seems less when you know who's going to win. And I'm going on record to say today, he is going to win. Is that all I get? He is going to win. Yeah. I wanted to sound like a victory cry. You talk about all these little skirmishes we have here. Remember, he wins. Heard me tell a little story of the boy who came home from Sunday school one day and told his mom, I'm going to read the book of Revelation. She says, you can't read the book of Revelation. Nobody can understand the book of Revelation. Said, I'm going to read it. So when she got done, when he got done, his mom said, well, what would you learn from the book of Revelation? He said, well, I didn't understand it. You were right. But I did understand one thing. We win. And that's just about all a little boy needs and maybe some of us need to remember that that's the message of the book of Revelation. God isn't going to lo lose out. You don't have to play Patsy to the other side because I've got news for you. They're going to lose. So it's the power to subdue. 
He is able to subdue all things to himself. Then 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8. 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 8. This is, of course, in one of those marvelous texts that talk about our stewardship and the tremendous opportunity that we have to give. Chapter 9, verse 8, And God is able, God has the power, to make all grace abound to you, that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. You notice how, the, how Paul widens the scope of this thing. He's talking here about the fact that God is able to give you enough money so that you can be a good steward. And that's really the thing that's important, that you be a good steward of the Lord's money. He is able to do that. But he doesn't, he doesn't quit with just the immediate context. He broadens this out. He says, he says, God is able, God has the power to make all grace abound to you that always having all sufficiency in everything, not just money and all of those things, but, but maybe you need emotional help today. He is able to give you that. His grace is sufficient for that. Perhaps you need, you need comfort. He's got enough comfort for all of you. Perhaps there is a need for motivation. He's got enough motivation for all of you. I don't know what you may need today. Wisdom. Let him ask of God who gives liberally and abradeth not, James tells us. He doesn't bawl you out saying, you need more wisdom? No, he just loves to give you wisdom. People say, but I lack wisdom in this matter. Then ask for it. God wants to give it to you. See what I'm saying? He is able. He is able to give you all that you need in all things. So again, he is able to give you salvation. He's able to safeguard you. He's able to subdue all things to himself. He's able to supply. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Look with me, if you will. Hebrews 2.18. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, Christ went through it. Christ was there. He knows the difficulties that you face. He had temptation 40 days in the wilderness. Throughout his life, he was tempted not to trust God. People, Peter said, Lord, let's do it some other way. And the Lord says, get thee behind me, Satan. Every turn of the road, Christ was faced with the same kinds of questions and problems and difficulties that you faced in life, that you face in life every day. He was tested in all points like as we, yet without sin. And because he is has suffered all those things, what does it say? He is able. He has the inherent power to come to the aid of those that are tempted. He can rally to your side because he is able, the old King James word was to succor. And so he is able to succor. Jude 24. Jude 24. You hear me quote this all the time. I'm just crazy about this verse tucked away in this little book of Jude. Jude 24. Now to him who is able, dunamis, who has the power to keep you from stumbling. Did you know he had the power to do that? 
Folks, there's victory out there if you'll take it. He has the power to keep you from stumbling. But not only to keep you from stumbling, he has the power to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy. He is able. He is able. He is able. Finally, the book of Ephesians, over and over and over again, we won't turn to it, but it talks about his ability, his power, his, his, his ability to take his power and transfer it to you so that the very same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is operative in the person of the Holy Spirit in your heart and in your life. He is the God who is able. And here is Amaziah, and he's in this dilemma. And he's saying, but if I go to battle with the troops, I might have a chance, except God's going to be against me if I do that. What am I going to do? See, that's what the problem the flesh always has. The flesh can never decide anything because it has no absolute standard. Christ lived his life, and what a life. It was a simple life. You know why it was simple? It was very uncomplicated when you think of it. He just obeyed God. No questions asked, folks. Just do it but I don't like it or I don't feel like it. Obey God. Obey God. Christ just obeyed God and obeyed... Well, why are you doing that? Because I'm obeying God. Why aren't you doing it? Because I'm obeying God. Why aren't you doing this? You ought to do it this way. No, I've got to obey God. Very simple life. We get it so complicated. You say, but it doesn't seem right. I mean, a hundred... In battle, aren't a hundred... I mean, aren't four hundred thousand better than three hundred thousand... Most of the time? I mean, wouldn't you agree? If you were going to battle, would you, would you prefer to have 400,000 or 300,000? God says you're better off with 300,000. Gideon was told, gather an army. Get as many volunteers as you can. All these people showed up. And God said, tell everybody who's frightened to go home. They all went home. And God whittled them down till they had 300 he said, okay, we're ready now. 300 people. How could God win a battle with 300 troops against the hundreds of thousands of Midianites? Why would God whittle that troop down to that small number, knowing good and well that it's not practical? I'll tell you why. Because God wanted the glory. And he deserved it. If it's might against might, then who gets the glory? The mightiest. But if it is the weak against the mighty, the weak having God's help, who gets the glory? God gets the glory. And he is worthy of that glory. That's what we're faced with. But now we've got a new problem. Amaziah made his decision, and thankfully he made, in this case, the right decision. He said, okay, I can't take the chance with God on the other side. I, I've got to have God with me. I, but he says, what about all the money I spent? I gave three and a half tons of silver to those men. And you're going to say, let them go? I've got a contract. I've got to fulfill the contract or I'm going to lose all that money. You ever feel that way? When you go and do something 
that you know you shouldn't do, you begin to pay the consequences. And you say to yourself, but oh, all that I've gained. You know, there's a statement that is given traditionally that you really should have the rest of it. You only have a part of it. How many have ever heard, experience is the best teacher? How many have heard that? Okay. How many of you know the rest of the statement? See? You know what the statement was originally? Experience is the best teacher if you can learn no other way. Experience is the best teacher if you cannot learn any other way. You realize Scripture never tells us that experience is the best teacher. Scripture says, hey, pay attention. I'm telling you what's going to happen. I'm telling you what's right. Obey God. Don't experience it. And, and in the garden, this is exactly what Satan did with Eve. said, come on, just try it. Experience sin. And experience, in the case of Adam and Eve, was the best teacher because they wouldn't learn any other way. And it became a very hard judgment. I want you to understand, folks, that we find ourselves time and time again getting ourselves into messes. And then we have invested so much money, time, energy, everything else in the mess we've made that we don't see any way out. We don't want to lose all that. I know a man who, who went into business with an unbeliever against Scripture. He was counseled against it. He knew better. Scripture says don't have an unequal yoke. He established an unequal yoke. He thought he had it wired. They had a contract that was ironclad that would protect his Christian interests. He figured it was fine, but it didn't work out that way because godly, ungodly men don't have scruples. And the result was he found himself faced with a dilemma. He had invested everything he had in this business. There was only one way to get out from under his sin. And that was to walk away and let the man have the whole thing. He lost everything he had to do the thing that was right. Are you willing to do that? What has you in its grip today? And it's just been too expensive. You can't walk away from it. You've got too much invested. Well, there's a word for you. And the word is here in this text. Because... It says in verse 9, the prophet said this, the Lord has much more to give you than this. Much more. The much more of God. He's able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we could ask. You don't need your billions of dollars. You don't need your three and a half tons of silver. You can walk away from that. Why? Because you've got the Lord. You can win the battle with the Lord. You can be reimbursed by the Lord. You can live with the Lord's resources and never run out. So there are two things you can do. You can, buy a man, you can give a man fish, or you can teach him to fish. The man who learns to fish will never go hungry. The man who is given fish will only have one meal. God says, look, here is the resource that the world is offering. It's a one-shot deal. It's soon going to be gone. Now, walk away from that. 
leave it behind, as good as it looks at the moment, because I have an unlimited resource that I want to put at your disposal. Do you see, this? see the lesson? God wants to give you the much more. Ephesians 2.7 says, In the ages to come, that he might show his exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verse 17 of Ephesians. What is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his mighty power? God says, I've got much more than this. I don't think we ever turn our back upon that which is not of God and begin following the Lord, but what the Lord gives us more. The Lord is the God of the much more. He gives you much more in the way of supply. He gives you much more in the way of his provision. He gives you much more in the way of his power. He gives you much more all of the time as you are willing to do what he wants you to do. But you've got to be obedient. Sure, there's loss on the short range. But on the long range, praise God, there's victory. Now, I wish I could give you a happy ending to the story. But Amaziah reluctantly released the troops. He followed the Lord, but he wasn't very wholehearted about it. The troops were angry, likely because they wouldn't receive the plunder of battle. The, the three and a half tons of silver wasn't enough. They also wanted their booty. And so on their way home, they terrorized the villages. Amaziah went into battle, and he wrought a great victory. And when he was there, God had wrought the victory for them. What happened? He saw their idols. He picked them up, brought them home, began to worship them. And a prophet came to him again, only this time the, the story was different. A man who is half-hearted is only a half a step away from hardness of heart. Because here it, he was caught in a trap and he chose to follow the Lord because at the moment it was the expedient thing to do, but he didn't do it with his whole heart. And when the prophet came, here's what the prophet said. Why in the world would you take the gods from the people who had just lost the battle because their gods couldn't help them. See how stupid the flesh is? It was the God of Israel, the God who will not tolerate idolatry, who had given them the victory. They come back with the gods of the people that were defeated by the God of Israel and begin worshiping them. And that, my friend, is a mistake of the flesh. And when, the, when Amaziah heard the prophet say those words, he wanted to kill him. He was only one step from hardness of heart. Caught between a rock and a hard place, okay, I'll obey God. What about the money? Well, God will give you more. Okay, well, I guess I'll do it. He goes out and he does it, and he wins the victory. Oh, the grace of God. After he's won the victory, he took the accursed thing. Three lessons catch him if you can. When you're tempted to resort to fleshly schemes to accomplish what God has promised to do, remember, the Lord is able, he has the power to help and the power to bring down. Secondly, when you face the cost of your past sin and you have to walk away at great cost from those things that you have had and counted dear in order to obey God, remember this. The Lord has much more to give you than this. And thirdly, when after victory and obedience to God, 
You bring the spoils of the battle. Don't worship them. Remember, why have you sought the gods of the people who have not delivered their own people from your hand? Remember where the victory came. Don't allow false gods in your life. Amaziah is a great lesson. Unfortunately, one of those uh, red lights that we have in the Scripture, warning us of danger. But it can be tremendously encouraging if you stick with the words of the prophet who simply said, the Lord is able to help. The Lord is able to give you much more than this. And why in the world would you ever follow a God as puny and powerless as these idols? The God of materialism is puny. Look how unstable it is. The God of secularism is puny. Look at the mess the world's in today. We have a God who is all-powerful, a God who is able to supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus, a God who is an omnipotent and loving God and a God who cares about the details of your life. And there is no reason for any of us being double-minded about him. Follow him. Do that which is right in the sight of God, except that unlike Amaziah, do it with your whole heart. That's the message for us today. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for what you are doing in our lives, for what you continue to do. Lord, you are the God who is able to help. You are the God who is able to do much more. And you are the God who is far greater than anything else we might give worth. Thank you for what you're teaching us.